to Quarentia in Conversation. Q Conversations offer the chance for me, Mark Mennell, to sit down and chat with a range of fascinating people about the things that matter to them most. With six successful novels to his name, Charles Cumming has made waves on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, the Observer described him as the best of the new generation of British spy writers taking over where John le Carre and Len Dayton left off. Well, that is quite an accolade and certainly exalted company to find himself in. As we discuss in our conversation, the Cold War is, of course, long over, but spies are very much still with us. And so his books cover a range of contemporary issues, whether it's commercial exploitation of resources in the former USSR or Basque separatists in Spain or China's treatment of minorities. My favourite of his books is The Trinity Six, his fifth, which revisits the Cold War and posits the possibility of a sixth member of the notorious Cambridge spy ring of Burgess, MacLean and Philby and others. He's won awards, he's won plaudits, he's gaining a well-deserved reputation as a great writer, but to date the pinnacle of his career must be coming to talk with me. I don't think it gets better than this. And so, having not seen each other for over 20 years, we reconnected through social media, what else? And uh, he rashly agreed to come and be grilled uh, for an hour or so. He came, drank my beer, ate my toast, and this is the conversation that ensued. Charlie, thank you very much for pitching up and being willing to be grilled. Um, Now... I just wonder whether, in some ways, the approach that SIS or MI6 made to you in 1995 was the making of you. Because basically on the back of that moment, you've been able to construct an entire career writing spy novels. I think that's exactly right. I think it was... Um, so was it your, your luckiest day? Um, I would say that it was one of my luckiest days. It was um, an extreme stroke of good fortune. Um, and I'm still trying to work out why it happened to me, how it happened to me. Do you know who tipped them off about you? Well, I, I, it was simply a, uh, a friend of my stepfather's who, who right. I met. Who, um, I think the, f- the Foreign Office, SIS, kind of traditionally drools over old Etonians generally. And mm. so I fit the bill in that respect. And I had just had a good degree from Edinburgh University. And he and I had got on. Um, so maybe they thought at first glance that I was the kind of person that they were looking for. I don't know what it is that he... Were you down in London by that stage? I was living in London, but I was spending the weekend with my um, my mother and my stepfather. But he must have seen something around the corners of my personality to make him think that I would be ideally suited for this uh, position, or, or at least um, suitable for it. Because, and I don't think that this is a sort of cause and effect thing, I think um, I, I have developed... Not what I'm trying to say is not as a result of my exposure to SIS, a fascination with um, uh, duplicity and the double life and uh, the presentation of self as opposed to the real self underneath. And all of those things obviously feed very mm. immediately into the spy novel. So this is what I mean by it being fortunate. Um, that I always, I think I was always going to write novels. I was always going to be a writer. That was a thing that I could do. But it wasn't necessarily spies. But it wasn't necessarily spy. I didn't grow up on a diet of Le Carre and Dayton mm. and Ian Fleming and all that. I, uh, mm. I mean, I read some of them, but um, 
I would I would have probably ended up writing novels about what they you know quote unquote literary novels about twenty um, somethings in London in the kind of style of I don't know Nick Hornby or Ellis or Nick, Nick Hornby or something like that yeah. exactly and then this thing sort of fell into my lap and and, and it was just crying out to be dramatised the sort of the first half of a spy by nature if you like is mm. is a more or less autobiographical novel so how long was that little engagement was it was it just a matter of days or no it was a over a period of months but it I mean it was only a four or five interactions right. with them and then um, before I was jettisoned. Um, so they jettisoned you, did they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, um, there's a sort of sexy version of it, which is that there was a, um, a very attractive woman on the selection board, part of the group, not, not judging us, but part of one of the candidates. And she was slightly older than the rest of us. We were all sort of 24, 25, 26. And... Um, she was quite flirtatious with me, and I, I have a weakness for, for that sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, or I did, and no, I'm much yeah, older. And uh, we went for lunch the day after the exams had finished. And we got quite drunk the night before as well. And over lunch, she said to me, you don't really want to do this, do you? And I said, no, not really. I don't think I'm cut out for it, and, but I'm going to... I'm, sort of at a loose end in my life and as I didn't know this at the time but Kim Philby had said one does not turn down the opportunity to work for an intelligence service <laughs> especially if you're working with the other side yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> do, it th- do it twice yeah. um, and I said no I don't really think I want to do it but I'll carry it anyway and see how far I get anyway um, about six hours later they rang up and said thanks but we've taken your candidacy as far as it's going to go and I rang up this woman whose name escapes me now she, I should have said, she was already an employee of the Foreign okay. Office, so she was internal. She was applying internally yeah. to get into Farstream SAS, SISBE Special. And uh, I rang her up, and she absolutely cut me stone dead. I said, I haven't got in, you know. And she was, it was like talking to a different person. So either she had got in herself and was just sort of, oh, well, that's him. Or was a honey you know, Or, and that's the sexy version, <laughs> I was the victim of a very obvious... I mean, the ridiculous honey trap. And therefore, you would have been rubbish if you... I would have been dreadful, exactly. (laughs) They had all the proof they needed. (laughs) You failed at the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Put a woman in front of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I, about 10 or 15 years later, met somebody who told me that um, SIS and the security service have historically inserted people like that onto selection boards to watch the candidates' backs when the examiners are not looking to sort of see how people are reacting under pressure, i.e. when they come out of an interview or come out of a written exam, how they conduct themselves in the green room, if you like. So that um, confirmed this romantic suspicion that I had that I'd been the victim well, of a honey trap. Well, it's important to test these things out, isn't it? Because well, it's a, sort of, it's a, I would do that. It's a sort of an obvious thing to do, right? But <laughs> and you put that in one of your books, no doubt. No, actually, that was inspired by nature, the whole honey trap thing, and then it was, it was slowing the story down, I think. Right. So I think that she, she's, she's present. I think she's called Elaine Somerset in the book, which is not a very good name. But, um, but the, there was a whole uh, sequence of her getting involved with Alec more seriously, right. and then it was cut just because it was slowing the story right. down. But uh, so... You become. Are you a journalist when you're at the week, or are you? Well, I've stopped working there now, but I was. Um, yes, you're. You're sort of a uh, organised plagiarizer, really. But, yes. but, yeah, we. we, we um, so, so there's a bit of continuity, you could say, couldn't you, between a spy and a journalist? It's just a different audience for your material, your product. They're very similar professions. You're. Uh, you're tasked with uh, befriending people, making contacts, building relationships, getting behind. 
um, secure walls, secure doors, and finding it, you know, mm. poking your nose around where you shouldn't be poking it around. Um, there's bribery involved, and um, sex, and alcohol, and late nights, and uh, yeah, they are, I think, quite similar <laughs> trades. This so, is why often, um, it's interesting, in the American tradition of the spy novel, so many of the best or better American spy novelists are hacks. Huh. They're not ex-spies as they are over here. Huh. Hacks with very good access into Langley and right. all the rest of it. Um, Daniel Silver was, a, I think, a television reporter. Um, Ignatius, David Ignatius, is, an, is a very successful spy novelist. Huh. Dan Fesperman, they're all journalists. Yeah. But there does seem to be a British trend for spy novels, doesn't there? I mean, oh, sure. Yeah, no, I think that's the, the, the sort of the greatest... Yeah, so uh, what does it... I mean, you know, you go from Ambler to Dayton... It goes back further. It goes really Erskine Childers to... Yes, uh, John, yeah, John Buchan, Conrad, yeah. to, a, to an extent. Um, I mean, you can't really call Joseph Conrad or Graham Greene or Somerset Maugham spy novelists, but they did write yeah. very good spy novels, as has Ian McEwan um, and William Boyd. And, yeah. uh, so what is it about us? Why, why are we both fascinated and obsessed, but also quite good at it? It may be something to do with the public school tradition, mm-hmm. possibly, that we were discussing earlier. Why is that? I mean, because we're good at hiding things? and Dissembling, putting on a front, creating a parallel personality, um, the politics of surviving in an institution like that, particularly in the early 20th century. Mm. I think it's easier to survive in mm. Eton or Radley nowadays. Um, I think it's an end of empire thing. Um, so that's obviously one of the things that Le Carre has tracked or mm. did track in his, no- in his novels in the 60s and 70s. Being eclipsed by the states. Exactly, the sort of, the, the sort of dying animal, the, the, the Suez mm. embarrassment. Um, I think also there's a... Well, there's, there's elements of class, too. Mm. So you can look at Len Dayton's novels and see uh, he was, there was a determination there to show how uh, the working man, the working woman, the, the, the... Harry Palmer. The sort of grammar school-educated middle class exactly were um, really the heroes of the secret world as opposed to um, the upper-class twits, sort of the officer class. Mm. And obviously all of this stuff is packed into the Cambridge spy fiasco. So you have... Um, class there obviously you have the public school thing you have um, sexuality it, 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 the spy novel plays to so many of these um, crises in, in, this, in British identity mm. um, do you think that's, that's still the case well I was thinking about this on the way here that it only just occurred to me it's a very obvious thing but the, if, you, if you ask why there, there are better or more notable British spy novelists so some of the men that I've mentioned, and then Ian Fleming as well. It's just the obvious thing is that it's geography. That we were geographically proximate to the, the Iron Curtain, mm-hmm. Berlin Walls, an hour's flight away. Moscow, one mm-hmm. four hours away. And, and uh, so the, the threat from communism during the Cold War was existential, whereas in America it's theoretical. Red London, the bed, and McCarthy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. witch hunts, and so forth. So... Um, we were not that far from potential Armageddon. Range, yeah. yeah, ballistic range. Yeah, whereas the Americans had uh, miles and thousands of miles of ocean on either side, um, and Canada to the north. God bless her. Yeah. 
So um, I think that that's got to be something to do with it, and and just an, an American interest in other topics too, mm. um, manifest destiny, and, and mm. uh, it's a younger country. Um, so that that may partly explain. It. But you were asking why now? Is that still the case? I'm not sure that it is because the existential threat from terror, from um, uh, Al Qaeda nihilists and so forth, or as you just seen, we're talking two days after the Boston Marathon bombs. Mm. Um, everybody now is that threat from maniacs. Mm. Um, Do we know? Who the Boston? We don't. But I've, my American friends think that it's. I don't mean friends as in euphemistically. I mean literally friends. Yeah, not cousins. <laughs> yeah, not the cousins. <laughs> um, they think that it that almost certainly is homegrown, given that it was Patriots Day. Oh, right. So and I also think it was the. Somebody told me it's the the fifteenth is the day that Americans have to file their taxes. So maybe right. some anti-government protest. Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Hmm. I mean, are. Uh, I think you saw that sense of lost power and influence <coughs> in the way we tried to muscle in the Iraq war mm. intelligence, you know, with all those sort of 45-minute things. It was us um, getting back to the big table again, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, um, which which is, is almost shameful that we're still trying to play that game. It's embarrassing, really. Well, this is, I mean, we're talking on the day of Baroness Thatcher's funeral. And one of the things that she was credited with is um, building up brand UK again, mm. making us proud to be British, making Britain once again punch above its weight after Suez and after mm. basically going bankrupt in, the, in the, in bankrupt in the wake of World War Two. And certainly SIS, as, does, as the military believe that they are the very best at what they do, mm. um, and Britain... I don't know if it's naive to say that Britain does still stand for something. It may just be in our own imaginations, but mm. perhaps that's all that you need. Um, we certainly do pageantry better than most people. Yes. Pomp and circumstance. And, yeah. But, I mean, SIS believe in, in terms of recruiting um, agents and so forth that if you as an SIS officer can go to a... Um, member of a terrorist cell in uh, Palestine or uh, Baghdad or, or thereabouts um, and you're not French and you're not American and you're not <laughs> but you are British that um, is emblematic of something that, that that breeds a sense of trust in the person that you're trying to recruit now whether or not that's naive I, I don't know but it's probably better to be Canadian after <laughs> yeah but it, well it's a sense of trust but also access to power yeah. so um would a Belgian or a Canadian or, a, or an mm. Italian intelligence officer have as much clout as somebody working for MI6? Possibly not. Um, mm. So, yes, a little island who, which is still punching uh, above its weight, above her weight. Um, and But how long that can last, I don't know. Mm. I mean, do you, are you relieved that you never actually got sucked into that world? It's a very hard question to answer because... It strikes me in some of your books, you're yeah. actually, um, you know, hypothesizing about what, what if. That was certainly the case with Spy by Nature and with, to a certain extent, Spanish Game. And in, in, even in books. a foreign country. Mm. I, I wonder. But I think, well, that's just a sort of an act of imagination with foreign country. You're just trying to sort of 
think yourself into what it would be mm. like to be that man or to, to be living mm. in those circumstances. I think I'm sort of too far beyond ever thinking, you know, what if. Mm. I mean, I suppose purely for the life experiences, uh, also for the, for the um, material, <laughs> the fictional material, it would have been um, an interesting life. Would I have been very good at it? Probably not. And, it, and, the, and the circumstances of my life would have been quite different. My marriage, my children, uh, the books that I've written and so forth. So mm. um, were I to say, do I regret not getting in, that would sort of imply some sense of regret. And I don't really mm. regret that. I think they were right not to want me. Mm. I think I was right not to want them. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just think about fiction generally. And yeah. the whole process of creating a universe, creating a... A narrative and I suppose the tensions that come from you know plausibility on one hand and the sense of um, having an agenda having a purpose behind writing it so you you want the narrative to have its own dynamic and to flow and and the characters to have a life mm-hmm. that you know people often talk about characters just going in their own direction without necessarily you having complete control of it mm-hmm. but I don't know perhaps in um, was it in Typhoon I was just thinking you know the, there's a bit of a political angle there on the Uyghurs in China and um, trying to bring that to light and that certainly I'm sure raised the profile of that um, human rights issue mm-hmm. to an extent I mean Typhoon commercially certainly in this country was a sort of borderline disastrous book um, mainly because at the time um, it was believed that thrillers, spy thrillers should be more gung-ho, should be more like the the television series 24 that that, um, uh, this idea of sort of tub thumping or or an author getting onto his soapbox and and proclaiming about human rights or or, or, um, criticising the decision to go into Iraq or anything like that was um, somehow sort of in for a dig, you know, that, mm. that people wanted to be told stories, they didn't want to be lectured. And I did feel quite passionately, actually, about what was going on in Xinjiang. Had you been there? I mean, did you... I was, I was in China three times. I've never been to Xinjiang. No. Um, but uh, I was in Shanghai and in Beijing and in Hong Kong and there about Because I've got friends who've worked with some right. Uyghur folk in, in Turkey yeah. Yeah. and dealing with human rights things there, so it was a yeah. knock-on. No, but it's awful. It's ghastly. You're talking about the eradication of an entire yeah. culture, and it has that sort of special Chinese characteristic of not a sort of apparent lack of compassion or yeah. concern for the mutilation of Kashgar or, or the treatment of these young people, usually young men. Um, but did my book make any difference? Probably not. I mean, am I um, doing anything now to um, put that story or keep that story in the headlines? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you motivated by that issue? I was at the time of writing the book, and then, as is, as is the case mm-hmm. in life, you then move on to the mm-hmm. next thing. You know, and you have children, or you have another yeah. novel to write, or and I just like little old me, what the hell can I do? Um, but uh, I was asked, I was asked to go and appear at a literary festival in Shanghai, and I said, "This is a, this, this actually story is to my credit." I think <laughs> I said, um, I, "I would love to come. I'd love to go back to Shanghai, but if I am on a Platform, and they asked me about Typhoon, and they asked me about Xinjiang, and then I want to be able to speak frankly about it. <laughs> the woman, there's a friend of mine who's organizing, 
She said, no, no, it's probably better if you don't do that. Okay then, so so that was it. I mean, I, the, the invitation was essentially withdrawn because I yes. wouldn't be able to speak frankly there. So it's a, it's a very desperate situation. Yeah. Um, but there's really nothing one can do against the might of this. I mean, it's a monolith, isn't it? Bureau. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but uh, but it, the other question that you're asking, I suppose, is one of how you how you meld or, or storytelling and um, politics, or some sense of. Um, the writer wanting to, to, to have his or her say about a political issue. or And that, I, I think, is a question of experience and talent and subtlety. Mm. So possibly in a foreign country, um, there are things that I have to say about the relationship between um, uh, the UK intelligence forces and their American colleagues, for example, or uh, the use of torture in mm. um, the, the, the war against al-Qaeda or... or um, what used to be called Islamo-fascism, um, and the pressure on intelligence officers nowadays to dot every I and cross every T, um, and how essentially they have sort of one hand tied behind their backs because they can't really do their jobs without worrying about whether they're going to get hit by the Guardian or by lawyers. I mean, I think I explored those issues with mm. probably with greater subtlety in a foreign country than I did the Uyghur issue in, in, in Typhoon. Because, I mean, some have said that, for instance, Le Carre more recently has actually allowed the soapbox to dominate the narrative to some extent. Well, there you could have... I mean, I think that's true, but there you have a writer of... You know, he's, he's, ninth, he's now in his ninth decade. He's of extraordinary yeah. international stature, and he's a national treasure, and um, he has the privilege and also the opportunity to be able to to tub them, to get onto his soapbox, and, and people will listen to him and people will write about him. They may not agree with him. They might mm. say, look, is a fool, but they, but they might also think, well... I mean, he was kind of broadly right about Iraq, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Um, and, uh, I mean, he... That's, I mean, as much of anything else as a commercial thing, if you... If J.K. Rowling wants to write a novel about... Um, I just can't think off the top of my head something extraordinarily kind of niche. An art gallery. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the building of an art gallery, (laughs) and the one man who um, against all the odds. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or something really boring. Right. She can, she can do that, and they'll print five hundred thousand hardbacks, and they'll all sell, and that book will be taken seriously, and whatever she's decided to write about will be discussed and debated, and and it will become its own story just because yeah. she is who she is. If I write that book or if um, any uh, less successful novelist writes that book, then it just it won't. It, it, yeah. it, the um, publishers won't get behind you. The media won't get behind you. It's, just, it's, a, it's a numbers game. But do you find that you are getting more elbow room, particularly with Trinity Six and Foreign Country? Because that's had pretty good write-ups and things, hasn't hmm. it? And you've got... No, I think the fact that I tackled those... I think that the fact that I wrote those quite serious books, Spanish Game, about um, Basque terrorism and the Mm. Spanish state and and, and Typhoon and um, Foreign Country Now. The fact that I... I mean, I suppose that might be taken to be sort of that I was taking kind of a risk in in a commercial sense. Um, But it's paying off now in the sense that there is a respect for the backlist, if you mm. like, for the fact that I have those books and that I didn't just write about um, nuclear bombs going off in, in, in St. Peter's Square and people 
um, saving the Pope's life or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as my career goes on, hopefully I would be able to have more, or I could, I can, I can do what I want, but I, I would feel as though it was not crazy of me to um, address a political issue mm. wherever or what, whatsoever time it, it raises its head. Mm. Um. And in the, the narrative construction, um, I remember reading Le Carre talking about the whole business of um, incompetence and coincidence being very difficult, which, you know, to, to describe in an authentic or plausible way, because, of course, as an author, you are in control of your universe and the reader will instinctively assume that there is a purpose behind something, whereas in real life, incompetence and coincidence are daily occurrences. <laughs> Um, and I remember there was one time where, uh, I mean, because it's, what's the 50th anniversary of The Spy Came From The Cold this year. Mm. And um, at one point, Le Carre talked about how that could never happen in real life. The, the, the conspiracy was far too intricate mm. and, and complex, and it just wouldn't work. And he said, you know, if given the choice between conspiracy and a cock-up, I go for the cock-up every time. Yeah. But you can't write that. Have you? Well, it's interesting that he says that, because I would have said... But particularly his late books, in fact, all of his books, really, from Tinker Taylor on, have this extraordinarily kind of cynical, almost kind of nihilistic attitude to bureaucrats and, and institutions, whether it's government or the intelligence services. I mean, he's not averse to making people who are in positions of quite considerable power and achievement look faintly ridiculous. Mm. He has that sort of slightly sort of supercilious tone, you know, with... with um, but there are other the sort people. of ironizing. Yes, yes, there are other. But George Smiley is the sort of exception that proves Smiley the rule. Smiley and Carla you want to go to George. Are the chess players? Yes, aren't they? Yeah, but they're sort of surrounded by yeah. um, either maniacs or or, or fools. Um, but cock up and conspiracy. Yes, I mean the kind of controlling argument on this one is WMD, mm. and it's the it's the argument that you can sort of checkmate any conspiracy theorist with, which is that if. Um, these guys really were as as, as mendacious and, and, and as um, uncivilized as they're often made out to be. When I mean these guys, I mean Western governments and their intelligence services. Then, in week two, or even probably week one of the Iraq invasion, lo and behold, they would have found lots and lots and lots of <laughs> chemical weapons and WND in Iraq and mm. on the road to Baghdad. Oh, look, we found them because they would have been planted there by mm. the CIA or planted there by the Mossad. But they didn't, which I think speaks very highly of the Western government. Well, that's a very good point. Yeah. But, um, but um, in terms of operational sophistication, I mean, I've heard anecdotally some, you know, some stories that are sort of quite impressive in the way in which certain operations were run. The only, imp the only, uh, the only one thing I would say is that they seem sometimes to be more complicated than they need to be. SIS and the security service are almost kind of um, needlessly covering every base. Yes, and sort of almost to a, to the extent of sort of um, enjoying the theatre of the thing mm. and, the, and the drama of the thing, and that and the competition of the thing, getting one up on the target, mm. sometimes at the expense of, of common sense. That's the, that's, but that's purely a hunch. That's mm. not uh, based on any particular evidence apart from sort of anecdotal. And what do you think about the whole culture of conspiracy theories? I mean, you know, everything from moon landings to Obama's birth certificate and 
What, what, why do people jump on that so much, do you think? Um, I, I think... I mean, I find it kind of generally dismaying. A great friend of mine's sister married a guy who really did believe that the, the planes on 9-11 were piloted by the Mossad or you know, mm. by sort of fly-by-wire, and it mm. was all a kind of Jewish conspiracy, and horrific stuff that comes out of people's mouths. Mm. I think it's something to do with people wanting to feel that they are clever. Mm-hmm but having some sense of a kind of an intellectual failing inside themselves that they can't grasp or articulate properly, properly um, real-world arguments, that they're always going to be bettered by somebody intellectually if they actually discuss things seriously. So they have to sort of go into a kind of parallel world where they can master... Uh, it's almost maths. Masonic, isn't it? Yeah, it's on a, the it's a, yes, exactly. It's a kind of a... It's a, it's a secret world. It's kind of Dungeons and Dragons, and but they... But they, but they really know their stuff, and they know that you won't know their stuff because yeah. you're not interested in it. You haven't genned up on it because you're reading the Times or the Economist, which is which <laughs> just closer to the truth than this barking mad stuff that comes out of sometimes quite otherwise reasonable, nice people. And yet, there's that phenomenon, isn't there, with newspapers that if ever you read something about an event about which you know something, there are always things wrong. That's certainly true. I think that there's um, some, there's lazy journalism and there's um, uh, there is secrecy, um, and it's very rare that the public is given the full mm. facts. But it's a long way from that to yeah. um, man didn't land on the moon. Or I mean, I'm I'm a kind of a JFK um, lone gunman is not the right theory. I mean, I sort of believe in the grassy knoll. But that's about as far as I go. The other thing to say about this is it's so extraordinarily um, uh, damaging to the reputations of soldiers and politicians and, and, and doctors and nurses and anybody else who was involved in these historical mm-hmm. events that, or the people who were killed during these terrible tragedies, whether it's 9-11 or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it, it just to... Um, it's... It, People don't seem to kind of, sort of morally that's so repugnant to hold to hold these views. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in just going back to the spy world and living in that world and the impact it has on people, and how if you're constantly assuming the worst of the other side and trying to find out dirt under the surface and. In, in a sense, you have to be paranoid to do your job. Mm. How that doesn't seep into the whole of life and inform pretty much how you understand everything. I think there was was there one character in um, or one moment in From Country where was it a mentor of Kel who says there's no such thing as paranoia, only facts, and he says something like I'm not so sure in experience and intuition or something. I don't know. I can't remember. Okay. Well, I, I've got it somewhere. I hope I said that. Sounds really I think, interesting. Well, I think you did say it. So <laughs> I was quite impressed. <laughs> Maybe I got it off the internet. Yeah, you uh, probably did. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a difficult question. I think, um, actually, rather in the way that going to public school, to come back to that, separates you out from the great kind of river of humanity in some weird way. You always feel kind of separate. Mm. I'm saying this to you because you're also at the same school as me. I think there's something to be said for 
the idea that working for an intelligence service does the same thing for different reasons. The most obvious one being that you can't talk about what you do. Mm. So your husband... And these days your, you can't really talk about where you went to school anymore. You know? No, that's the only... Yeah. <laughs> but if you're, if you're an MI5 officer and you, you leave home in the morning and you say to your wife or to your husband, have a good day at work, dear... Um, which building you at today, or what are you doing today? Are you, are you? I can't tell you. I can't tell my husband. I can't tell my wife. I can't tell my boyfriend. I can't tell my girlfriend mm. where I'm going. Um, like, there's, there's a very basic level the effect on a on a relationship. I think is you, there's a really interesting book I think to be written about being the partner of somebody who is a spy. Mm. Now I know that uh, they make an effort to bring husbands and wives and girlfriends and partners into certainly into the security service, so that they can kind of have a look around and meet their partner's colleagues and so forth and make it a little bit more collegial Is that a recent development? That I couldn't tell you, but I know that they do do that. Mm. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Nevertheless, um, actually this, talking about Carrie, I saw him talking about this on the Tinker Tailor DVD, this idea that if you have a group of high-functioning, often quite sort of physically attractive, although that doesn't necessarily matter, people, who are under great stress, and who know secret things, and they can only talk unto themselves about those things. Um, and they're working in close proximity, um, very hard and under great stress for long periods of time. There's probably more likelihood of something happening mm -hmm. um, of an adulterous nature, or whatever, mm -hmm. than there would be in, say, an insurance firm or, or um, yeah. a newspaper office, although newspaper offices are bordellos <laughs> but uh, so I think yeah in terms of relationships but then on the actual self um, I don't know if I mean it's pretty hard I would imagine not to end up as a total cynic but I, the only thing I would correct is that I think this idea that um, spies are just liars most spies I think would, would resist that interpretation sure. of what it is that they do most spies um, are actually going into a relationship with the objective of telling the truth at the yes. end of it. So if I'm trying to recruit you because I want to have some information about um, the financing at All Souls or something like yeah. that, then, yes, to start with, you won't know that I'm an MI5 officer. Um, and my ultimate objective will be to seduce you into liking me or trusting me or whatever. And then so I eventually it's have to... order, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to seduce you. <laughs> but, uh, but eventually I'm going to come clean, but... Lying? I don't think there's any more lying in spying than there is in banking or right. in the movie business. Or, or in selling there. insurance. Yeah, I think this is probably why one of the reasons why spy novels, spy films are so popular is that they are not that far removed from no. the everyday. The way that, I mean, the act of, I mean, they talk about the act of romantic seduction is really no different. To but I suppose I'm not, it's not so much the lying as the inability to trust others. So, you know, you... The, the classic caricature is that the motivation is so that the world out there can sleep safely in their beds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might have got my motives clear. I, I, you know, this is for the greater good. Yeah. But how you resist, you know, losing any sense of optimism and because you're seeing the worst of things, presumably, and digging them up. Yeah. But would that be any worse? I mean, I'm only playing devil's advocate here, mm -hmm. but would that be any worse than, say, being a... Um, emergency room doctor or mm -hmm. a, a police officer mm -hmm. on working homicide or I mean I think all 
part of getting older, I suppose, mm. in all sorts of ways, is you become more jaded. That doesn't mean to say that you become more unhappy, but you certainly become more um, inured to <laughs> how complicated and how difficult yes. the world can be. And you see, uh, realistic, you see selfishness, you see divorce, you see. Uh, lying you see mm. cruelty and so forth the older you get so yes these institutions get you I mean I made this point inspired by nature these institutions get you when you're young when you do have a sense of sort of zealous mm. either patriotic fervor or, or um, the desire to make a difference in sort of simple terms and that cannot last much beyond about 35 mm. I would have thought mm. um, so what replaces it a sense of bureaucratic ennui or um tiredness or its opposite, you know, sense of I can really make it in this business, I can mm. be a pedigree intelligence officer or whatever it might be. But uh, and all, the other thing to say is that the, the, they know that they're going after some fairly unsavory people. It's not like they're being surprised by mm. um, listening to um, brainwashed young men on, on cell phones talking about blowing up shopping centres. And, and there may be a sense of... Um, delight and, 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 and fulfillment in, and, in bringing those people to justice mm. um, and seeing them brought to book having said all that I do, I do think that there is something of the sociopath in the character of uh, the spy um, that, that some, some ability to separate the, uh, the, the, the moral consequences of what you're doing from from the from the task that you have been set or that you've set yourself, I think, and that and that and that probably stems largely from um, a kind of an intellectual arrogance. The fact that these people are extremely bright mm. and extremely, usually extremely competitive. Um, there's a there's a sort of social Darwinist element to the to the um, makeup of the spy, which which encourages these things or makes them mm. more plausible, makes them more likely. That's my. Ten, that's my two cents. <laughs> are you are you optimistic about the world? Um, or perhaps you're a realist. <laughs> I God, I don't know. What do I feel about that? I suppose I'm not. Um, I, I'm not hugely expectant of um, it politically, in the sense of a. Um, a figure emerging from our generation or from subsequent generations who will who will be a political leader of stature or, or, or of or of great consequence certainly in the West. I think one of the things that was so exciting about Obama was that he sort of felt like that Hollywood figure. You know, that he he was the sort of decent liberal uh, intellectual of your dreams, and he had West Wing come to life. Yeah, but and then there was the racial yeah. civil rights thing all bound into it. I'm a great Obama fan still. But um, but he, I think most people would agree that in in terms of what he's been able to do globally, he's been, and in terms of actually America is even more divided than it was when he came mm. to power. Um, as a, as a as a leader of stature, he's he's been disappointing. I think as a man, I think he's hugely admirable. Mm. Um, and and the reason for that is um, something that Martin Amis observed. I think this is that that that, that politics now is in a postmodern phase. That, that if, if you think of um, What's that building in Paris? The uh, I want to say Trocadero, but it's not that. The Pompidou Centre. It is the Pompidou Centre. Yes, my name is pointing out that that um, that you everybody has seen into the machine now. We know far far too much about our politicians 
and uh, making laws and sausages. Yes, exactly, exactly. And um, so the right kind of people are not going into that world because who wants to be mm. exposed to it? It's a, it's, I mean, I wouldn't want to be David Cameron for all the tea in China. You know, mm. it's just an absolutely thankless job. Um, so all you can really hope for is somebody who's just going to um, make good decisions and uh, um, behave in a dignified way. And uh, so, do you think there is any sort of I don't know overarching? narrative to make sense of the world or do we just have to sort of muddle through and <laughs> work it out as we go on following our noses as it were because it seems to me that in the west we've largely abandoned any of that sort of big story thing that we can all but that may be a good thing that may be a good thing it was enormously divisive you see it you saw it with thatcher mm. the, the you know the, the week we've just had with with Margaret Thatcher, that was hugely divisive so we're I, ideological yeah that those ideological times were i mean you know, look, the East and West, Iron Curtain. You know, they, they, they didn't make anybody any happier. It's probably good not to be ideological. I mean, you look at people who have um, the, the sort of zealots nowadays are, you know, let's bring back the caliphate, um, mm-hmm. Shia fanatics, mm. um, and they ain't doing much good. So I'm not a big fan of um, of kind of big theme politics. I'm not saying that it should be every man for himself, but um, probably... But it does the, mean that trying to build consensus is practically impossible. Yes, but that's because there is broadly a consensus, really, let's face it. I mean, again, with Thatcher, you look at that legacy, Blair, Cameron, mm. Brown, they've all really more or less followed the same political trajectory, certainly economically. Mm. I mean, you see, great, you see a great divide in America, but that tends to be... I think there's... there's I mean, from my point, this is the personal view, but I think there's oh, that sort of Tea Party far-right lunacy is just... It's just ignorance mixed up with the wrong interpretation of the scriptures, you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> it just, um, it, it's not to be taken all that seriously. I think it's hugely damaging and divisive, but it's, I think it's particular to the United States. I don't think it's going to kind of come over here. Well, there isn't anything like this in no. a Christian right in this no. country anyway. No. Um, no. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, um, Charlie, we need to sort of draw stumps and you've got to go and life must go on. But just a few thoughts. I mean, is there a future for spy fiction? Yes, God, I hope so. Yeah, because otherwise it's, it's a <laughs> bit of a bum rap for you. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I'll be driving. I'll be driving taxis. Yeah, you know, I sometimes dream of driving a taxi. <laughs> yeah. I actually wouldn't mind doing that. Yeah, It'd be bad for your back. That's true. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely a future for spy novels. I mean, I don't think that they will ever have. I mean, people will always spy, won't they? People will always spy. That's for sure. I mean, the great advantage that Le Carre and Dayton and Fleming and their ilk had is that much less was known about spying 30, 40 years ago. And therefore, when. And when that the Cold War was an espionage war. Exactly. And, and the Cold War absolutely served beautifully the requirements yeah. of the genre and um, Carla and Smiley and so yeah. forth. Nowadays, um, your enemy is, as, as, as I've described, the, the, the brainwashed fanatic with his suicide vest. And yeah. it's extremely hard to. A humanize and be uh, empathize with somebody like that. Whereas um, your opposite number in Moscow, certainly in the pre-Putin years and in, in, in the Cold War years, was not so very different from ourselves. He watched mm. the same football mm. on TV. He drank the same wine, drank the same whiskey, and, and and much less, as I say, was known about spying. When you opened a Le Carre novel, when you opened a Dayton novel or a Frederick Forsyth novel. They, those guys were telling you stuff that you didn't know. Nowadays, people know an awful lot. Some quick fire questions just to finish up with. Yeah. MI6 or MI5? Six. Why? 
uh, personal reasons. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and if you told me you'd have to kill me. Yeah. Um, Graham Greene or John le Carre? Oh. Like, uh, pass. Um, no, you can't pass. Green. Broader. What? Broader scope, bigger. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a huge, huge, huge admiration for yeah. the carry, but I'd have to take the green. Yeah, okay. Uh, Berlin or Moscow? Never been to Moscow. Love Berlin. Mm. Okay, that's easy. Single malt or vodka? <laughs> Single malt. Because? Um, Are you Scottish? Aye. <laughs> okay. Um, Vladimir Putin, is he misunderstood or a threat? I think he's revolting, and I think he's dangerous, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I cannot imagine a, an argument that could be put forward which would in any way justify the, the manner in which that man runs Russia or, or has conducted himself, uh, the attitudes that he holds. I think he's repugnant. Okay, that was fairly clear. Um, Magic Roundabout or Captain Pugwash? Uh, Pugwash. Uh, purely because when I think of him, I haven't thought of him for 15 or 20 years, but I'm immediately smiling. Yes, yeah. fair enough. And finally, God or Mammon? Oh, God. Excellent. <laughs> I'm not just saying that because you're a man of God. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, I mean, what do you want to... But, but the, the world of uh, the heart, the spirit, the, uh, of uh, taking care of your fellow man, um, dignity above money and, and success, definitely. Charlie, thank you very much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Listen out for the next podcast as and when it comes.